Well, good morning once again. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. As some of you will know, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark over the past few weeks in hopes of exploring who Jesus is and what he came to do in this world. And the plan is to continue looking at the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings through Easter. We're going to end Mark on Easter Sunday, and then we'll start a series in the book of Jonah, a short series in the book of Jonah at that point, for those of you that like to plan ahead. But one thing that we've seen is that Jesus came to identify with sinners. That's what we see in the book of Mark. He came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came because he wants to identify with you, and he takes on flesh, he takes the low place, and he becomes like us in a very real sense. But we also see increasingly so through the gospel of Mark that Jesus, though he's like us, is entirely different from us. He's completely other. He's powerful to accomplish anything that he wants to accomplish, anything that he wishes to do. And this is something that you and I need. Someone who is able to identify with us and understand us on one hand, but also on the other hand, someone who is different from us, who has the ability to reach down and to pull us up out of our bondage and our slavery. Over the next three weeks on Sunday morning, we're going to be focusing in on the power of Jesus the power of Jesus. This week, we're going to see the power that Jesus has over the natural world, over nature. And then the next two times we look at the book of Mark, we'll see the power that Jesus has over unseen spiritual forces and also over death itself as we move into Mark chapter 5 in the coming two weeks. But this morning, our passage highlights the power that Jesus has over nature. And it shows the power he ultimately has in our lives. Often when we think of Jesus, I think we tend to gravitate immediately to characteristics like compassion or his love or uh, his wisdom. We like these things about Jesus. But in this passage that we're about to read, the spotlight is really on Christ's power. Jesus is one who has power over his creation. He has power over the events that happen in your life. And when we see that kind of power, it can evoke deep fear in our hearts. But it's also very comforting. To see just how fearful yet comforting it can be, let's read Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. It's printed for you in your bulletin. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your power. We thank you that you are in control of all things, including our very lives. And we pray this morning that your power would be a great comfort to our hearts and our souls. Open our eyes to see your word, see you clearly. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder if you remember the last major weather event you experienced. The kind of weather event that maybe really scared you and maybe even caused fear in your heart. Surely some of you experienced some pretty scary weather events in your life. I remember two such weather events in my own life. One happened last summer. My family and I were on vacation in Arkansas at a lake house, and we were on the boat in the middle of the lake, tubing and swimming, having fun. And in the middle of the afternoon there on the middle of the lake, a storm cell kind of came out of nowhere. We noticed some dark clouds beginning to form, and we decided to head back in. But before we could make it back in, a huge storm hit us out of nowhere in the middle of the lake. There was loud thunder, and there was lightning coming down all around, and I put the boat on full throttle, and rain was pelting us harder and harder as we were moving across the lake. Waves got bigger and bigger, and before I knew it, everyone else on the boat, my family, my mom, my grandparents included, were huddled in the middle of the deck, crying and screaming after each thunderclap that was hitting us on the lake. And luckily, we made it back, but it's still the kind of storm and the kind of fear that we talk about as a family even today. I also remember a few years back when San Antonio experienced the last hurricane-strength windstorm that we've had. Some parts of the city endured straight-line winds that night. It was a Sunday night, and lots of damage was done to homes and businesses, specifically on the uh, 281-410 kind of corridor. And I remember I was driving home that evening from a friend's house, and at one point I was on the overpass coming off 410 leading on to I-10 East, which must be at least 100 feet off the ground. I mean, Rachel is scared to drive on these overpasses on a completely clear day because they're so high. It's amazing how high they are. And at the time, it was the worst of the storm. Very high winds were coming in. I was driving on this overpass right in the middle of the worst winds, at least 100 feet in the air. And I came upon a car in front of me that was driving slow. And I'm behind them thinking, I've got to get across this bridge before the wind blows me off this bridge. I literally thought that my car was going to be blown off the overpass. Luckily, I made it across. And it doesn't happen often. But every once in a while, you experience a weather event that reminds you how small you actually are. A weather event that reminds you how fragile humans can be. We've all been in the kind of events where we experience deep fear and a feeling that we're no longer in control. This is out of our hands. I'm just lucky to come out on the other side. We've all experienced situations where we come face to face with the fact that we can no longer manage the situation. And it causes a certain degree of fear and helplessness in our hearts. And it's not unlike what the disciples were experiencing in this passage this morning. They felt hopeless. They felt fearful. They felt completely out of control. We don't like the feeling of having no control. We often pride ourselves on the fact that we can handle things, that we've got it covered, that we don't need help. I read an article a while back from the New York Times by a religious studies professor at Duke University named Kate Bowler. And this professor had spent a number of years studying the prosperity gospel. And she wrote a book on the phenomenon, actually. And the article that she wrote in the New York Times was entitled, Death, the Prosperity Gospel, and Me. And it begins this way. She says, On a Thursday morning a few months ago, 
I got a call from my doctor's assistant telling me that I have stage four cancer. The stomach cramps I was suffering from were not caused by a faulty gallbladder, but by a massive tumor. I'm 35. I did the things you might expect someone whose world has suddenly become very small. I sank to my knees and cried, called my husband at home nearby. I waited until he arrived so we could wrap our arms around each other and say the things that must be said. I've loved you forever. I'm so grateful for our life together. Please take care of our son. Then he walked me from my office to the hospital to start what was left of my new life. And as she continues her article, she touches on the idea of losing control and how much we hate the idea of losing control over situations in our lives. And she says this, one of the most endearing and saddest things about being sick is watching people's attempts to make sense of your problem. My academic friends did what researchers do and Googled the heck out of it. When did you start noticing pain? What exactly were the symptoms again? Is it hereditary? I can outknow my cancer using the Mayo Clinic website. Buried in all their concern is the unspoken question, do I have control? I can also hear it in all my hippie friends and their attempts to find the most healing kale salad for me. I can eat my way out of cancer. Or if I were to follow my prosperity gospel friend's advice, I can positively declare that it has no power over me and set myself free. What happens when you lose control? What happens when you can no longer manage life with your own resources? When the waves threaten to take over? Maybe it's the waves of guilt or failure or insecurity. Maybe the waves of doubt and skepticism. Maybe you're being pounded this morning by temptation that just won't stop. Maybe you're being pounded by the waves of relational turmoil with friends or family. Maybe someone you love is being pounded by the waves of sickness and death. I wonder what you're being pounded by this morning. What are you afraid of? Whatever it is, we don't like the feeling of being out of control. We don't like being afraid. What are we supposed to do when we feel this way? How are we supposed to deal with the waves that pound against us in this life? Well, as we pick up this story, we have to know that it must have been a huge storm for these disciples to be so fearful. Remember, at least a handful of Jesus' disciples were professional commercial fishermen. It's what they had done all of their life. They were used to the Sea of Galilee. They would have experienced many of the storms during the course of their lives that that sea has to offer. Storms were pretty common on the Sea of Galilee. It's a large lake that's about eight miles across at its widest point, and it sits about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains on the north side, especially Mount Hermon, which rises 9,200 feet above sea level. And it was a common occurrence for wind patterns to shift in this bowl-like context. Wind coming off the mountain, cold wind hitting warm wind on the lake, and it would produce massive storms on the Sea of Galilee. And you got to know that some of these disciples had experienced these storms before. They likely knew exactly how to handle situations like this. The normal occasional storm on the Sea of Galilee. But what we see in our passage is that this storm is different. This storm is abnormally strong. 
The resources they have aren't enough to handle this storm. We see in the passage, it says the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The storm was too much for them. They were completely exposed on this boat, wide open to the elements. They couldn't bail water fast enough and they began to become afraid. I think we can really identify with what the disciples are going through in this account. We can relate with these disciples because there are things in all of our lives that feel too big for us to handle, that cause deep fear in our hearts. There are places in each of our lives where the waves are breaking in and the boat seems to be filling up fast and we can't bail water fast enough. It's important to know that in this day and age too, the water was considered to be a force of chaos and evil and destruction. In ancient literature, the sea is an uncontrollable power. It's a dark force. It's uncertain. It's why you look at a map from the ancient world and oftentimes where the sea is, you see monsters coming out of the water on those maps. The sea represented chaos, the dark power of evil. And this is why you see at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, when John describes it, he says, there will be no more sea. There will be no more ocean. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be water in the new heavens and the new earth. It means there's going to be no more chaos. No more what represents evil and sin. These disciples would have been full of fear and uncertainty in these waters. Especially given the fact that this account happened at night. (laughs) I hate being on water at night. You don't know what's underneath you. You can't see ahead of you. And as an aside... I want you to notice how much detail is found in this short passage. We see uh, Mark say that there were other boats with them. And we see him say that Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion. Very detailed account of what's happening here. This is what biblical scholars call irrelevant detail. Details that aren't necessary for the story. They don't really push the story ahead, but they're mentioned simply because they're true. Because it happened. And it confirms for us that we're reading eyewitness testimony when you see these irrelevant details throughout the Gospels. The green grass. The fact that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern. And on top of that, notice the negative light that the disciples are painted in. Mark doesn't try to hide the disciples' failures and lack of faith. If I were crafting this story, I might put myself in better light. I would have come to Jesus first and said, I have so much faith, please help. But these are small assurances that we have original truthful testimony in the Gospels. Okay, that was free of charge, by the way. Back to the passage. The disciples in the midst of this storm, they frantically wake Jesus up. And Jesus is asleep in the stern on the cushion, which highlights the fact that Jesus is actually human. He's exhausted. He's been working hard, doing ministry, and this isn't a teaching tactic where Jesus kind of has one eye open, waiting for the disciples to come to him and ask for his help, and all of a sudden, surprise! He's really tired. And after waking up, he would likely have to come to and blink and get his bearings, and they wake him up, and the disciples wake him up with a certain set of assumptions. Did you notice the tone of their question and the assumptions they make of Jesus in verse 38, when they ask, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? 
And the way they ask the question almost places the blame for their situation on Jesus. How ironic. I mean, they don't think to go to Jesus first. They try to manage the situation on their own. And then when they finally do come to their senses and decide, well, maybe we should go and talk to Jesus about this. He might know what to do. They go with a sense of entitlement and accusation. They go and say, don't you care? Where have you been? Asleep here on the stern? And I think we can resonate with these disciples. Often we experience very similar situations in our lives. Situations where everything is going wrong, where you're sinking, where you can't bail water fast enough, and God seems to be asleep. God seems to be unaware of your situation. And in a sense, the disciples are saying in verse 38, if you loved us, if you loved us, you wouldn't have let this happen to us. And notice how Jesus responds to their assumptions and accusations. He wakes up and he rebukes the wind and says to the sea, peace be still, still. And the wind ceased and it says there was a great calm. The water turned to glass and the wind completely stops. Jesus simply says, be quiet. There's no fanfare. There's no incantations. Jesus does not call upon the name of the Lord to effect this miracle. It's just a simple word and the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus talks to the sea like a parent would talk to a child. And it's as if the creation recognizes the voice of the creator and it listens completely to his commands. In verse 39, it says, The wind ceased and there was great calm. The storm didn't die down over a number of minutes or hours. It stopped. It was dead calm, the passage says. The original language says. They had been experiencing a beating, waves crashing on them, and now complete glass clear calm. And this shocked the disciples. This is a voice and a power that only God has. And in this passage, Jesus is implicitly once again showing us that he is God. He has the authority of God himself. We're going to confess it in a few minutes with our confession of faith before communion this morning. We'll confess from Colossians 1 that all things hold together through the power of Jesus' word. We'll confess that order was created out of chaos in the very beginning with the voice of Jesus. So of course the water listens in Mark 4. It's heard this voice before. It knows this voice. The disciples have just watched their rabbi do what only God can do. And remember, so hard for us to remember this, to step back and remember that the disciples had never read Mark 4 before. You know, they don't know this story. They're living this story. And it's no wonder these disciples are afraid. I mean, they're still getting to know Jesus in many ways. They don't know him like even we know him today. And we see from this passage that Jesus shows how deeply he cares for his followers in the midst of the storm. He doesn't say, all right, guys, well, come back to me when your faith is a little bit stronger, and then I might consider helping you. Now, Jesus brings rescue in the moment, even for weak, faithed, fearful followers, but he also wants them to learn something in this situation. He asks them a pointed question in verse 40 when he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And it's as if he's saying, don't you know I've been here this whole time? I'm in your boat. I'm in your storm. I'm not far away in the midst of what you're experiencing in your fear. And we've got to hear this in the middle of the storms and life that we face too. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Sometimes that question can be hard to hear because we want to scream, can't you see why I'm so afraid? Isn't it obvious why I'm so afraid? I can't control the situation. I'm afraid I don't have the resources. I'm afraid because it feels like life is about to end. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is that we have no reason to panic, no matter life's situation, because Jesus is with us in the middle of our storms. No matter what storm we find ourselves in, we can rest because Jesus is not only in control, he's not only powerful, but he also loves us. And this is easy to say, but it's really hard to practice. I'm not an idiot. I live life just like you do. Having faith in the midst of life's storms is one of the hardest things we will ever do. And it's why I think the most important question in this passage is seen in verse 40 when Jesus asks, have you still no faith? And this could be translated, what Jesus is trying to get across here could be translated with another question, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I like that way of phrasing the question, and it's not accusatory. That's normally how I hear it from Jesus. And I think that has a lot to do with who I am internally. But instead, it's more invitational, I think. By asking the question that way, Jesus is reminding them that the critical factor in their faith is not its strength, but its object. You've got to grasp this. In other words, we don't need to muster up more faith in our hearts. We need to focus on the object of our faith, who is Jesus. We feed our faith and we quiet our fears by looking to Jesus in the midst of life's storms. It would always be great to have more faith. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It would always be great to trust more, to trust more deeply. But first and foremost, we've got to start small. We've got to be called to place what little faith we have in the right object. A few years back, David Gregory, who used to host Meet the Press on Sunday mornings, which ironically, I don't get to watch because I'm at work, wrote a book on faith. And I haven't read the book But the title always drove me crazy every time I saw it. It's a book entitled, How's Your Faith? How's Your Faith? And the title made me bristle because I wanted to scream, it's not about the strength of your faith, it's about the object. I mean, truth be told, a lot of times the strength of my faith is not very good or even properly focused. Normally, you and I place our faith in lots of other things besides Jesus, We place our faith in our relational abilities or we place our faith in our hard work ethic or our resumes or we place our faith in the resources that we have at our disposal, our money. We place our faith in our own ingenuity, in our influence. We even place our faith in faith itself as Christians. And the problem is these things aren't strong enough to hold us up in the middle of life's really strong storms. There's only one object strong enough to sustain us through 
all that life can throw at us, one object sturdy enough to hold us up through life's even most trying circumstances, and that object is Jesus himself. The fact that it's not the strength of your faith that matters, it's the object that matters is good news for us because our faith is often pretty weak. Just like the disciples, we are weak faith people, especially when we encounter storms in life, but we can have hope and confidence in the middle of the storms of life as we place our faith and trust in Jesus. This passage reminds us that Jesus takes us as we come. He helps us however we come, and we just have to come. And as we wrap up this morning, I want to point out the emotional state of the disciples at the very end of the story. In verse 41, we see that the passage ends and they're even more afraid than they were before. It says they were filled with great fear in verse 41. Ironically, after this great calm, the disciples become more frightened. Mark has already told us in Mark 1, 2, and 3 that the disciples had been amazed at what Jesus had done and as they witnessed it, but this is the first time in the gospel of Mark that they're frightened of Jesus. They're frightened of him. Verse 41 can be translated, they feared a great fear. Who is this that sea and wind obey him? They think if he can do that, and they're scared to finish the sentence. If he can do that, the fear of the storm is replaced by an even greater fear. The disciples know that they've encountered God himself. No one had the power to control the sea except for God himself. We read about it in a number of different psalms even this morning. You might know that, not know this, but we try to craft the service around a theme. And you heard in our call to worship in our Old Testament reading from this morning, we read that God controls the sea. The disciples are fearful because they know their Old Testament and they begin to realize who's standing in front of them. They realize there's more power in Jesus than any storm they could encounter, but there's a huge difference. And the difference is that storms don't love you. Storms don't know you, but Jesus does. And he is powerful and he is loving. We fear lots of things in life. We fear when storms hit. And when we realize that Jesus has the kind of power to actually make a difference in our lives, to steal the storms in our lives with just a word, it makes a sense that our fear would transition from fearing circumstances to fearing Jesus. But fearing Jesus and his power can be life-giving because Jesus is one who loves you. He's powerful but good. The kind of fear the disciples had in verse 31 is actually what you were made for. To feel small, to live in awe. It's why we go to the Grand Canyon. Nobody stands in front of the Grand Canyon and says, man, I just feel so good about myself. They go because they feel their fragility. And this is what we were created to experience in front of the one who deeply loves us and knows us. It reminds me of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Kids, you guys might remember this where Susan and Lucy are about to be taken to meet the great Christ figure Aslan. And they grow curious about Aslan and what their meeting is about to look like. And they begin to ask questions of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they ask if Aslan is a man. They don't know yet. They haven't met him. And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan a man? Certainly not. 
I tell you, he's the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? She'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will. And make no mistake, said Mr. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. In the passage that many of you know, Lucy asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Look, in this passage, the disciples are beginning to understand that Jesus isn't necessarily safe, but he is always good. And this is a comfort in the midst of life's storms. In your life, you're going to experience heartache and disappointment. You'll have seasons in life where you feel like you're drowning, where you can't bail water fast enough. And God never promises that you will not experience these storms. Remember at the very beginning of our passage, Jesus is the one who takes these disciples into the storm. He invites them to go with him into this storm. But God is all wise and loving. And even though we don't know why everything happens in life, God does. And isn't it possible that God who sees all things might have a greater purpose for the storms in our lives than we can immediately see? It's exactly what we see at the end of Christ's life after all. Because on the cross, Jesus experiences a storm of his own. And it seems hopeless. We look at it and the disciples would have been wondering, what is happening on the cross? How could this occur? On the cross, Jesus is thrown into the ultimate storm, the only storm that has the potential to sink us eternally. The storm of God's justice. The storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept Jesus away on the cross. And in light of this, we can never say that God doesn't care. Because if Jesus didn't abandon us in that ultimate storm, he won't abandon us in the smaller storms we experience on a daily basis. And someday he's going to soon return with power and he's going to still all storms for eternity. There will be no more sea, no more chaos because he loves us and he cares for us. And knowing this, we can trust him. We can place our faith in Him amidst the storms of our lives. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are powerful. That you are one who knows us better than anyone knows us, better than we know ourselves, yet You're also one who loves us deeply, who cares for us, and who orchestrates events in our lives in such a way that it works out for Your glory and for our ultimate good. We pray that you would help us to believe that, help us to place our faith in you, and we pray that you would increase our faith, make it stronger, so that we might follow you through the storm, the midst of storms that we experience in this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.